0: Go ahead and take your seats, and um, if you have children, now's the time that they can leave and go to your class. To my right, to your left, uh, you'll be greeted, and your children will be taken care of. I am really thankful for the times that the college students come home, and um, this entire band, minus me, um, is high school students and college students, and uh, I'm just amazed, and I'm thankful for the um, musicianship and the heart. Um, I I, I know the backside of some of these... Um, people's lives in terms of that they really mean what they say and involved in feeding the homeless and so forth so it's just a blessing to have have them here um, with us Uh, let me just ask you if in preparation for what we're about to look at this morning if you would take and open your bibles to acts chapter 16 we're in the middle of a kind of a mini-series called be the book and that will be the text of this morning's message and uh, i wanted you to hear from somebody in our congregation um who has a story to tell. And one of the things that I like doing as a pastor is hearing people's stories because they're all so, so unique as far as um, where people come from and then how they met the Lord and the circumstances that, um, that brought about a change in their life. And every one of them is precious. And it's one of those things we should be asking each other a lot more instead of saying talking about the weather or football, Tony. Um, no offense. <laughs> What's your story? I mean, it just really is a good question that lets a person kind of unleash what God's done in their life. And um, one story that I've heard that I want you to hear this morning um, is a story of uh, Janelle White. Uh, Her and her husband, um, Tim, have been coming to this church for about three years. And uh, I've only really gotten to know them in the last year. Uh, Went fishing with with Tim on the chartered fishing boat with the men's ministry and had a good time catching fish. That was a good time. Uh, They have three beautiful daughters, and their youngest is in class with my son Isaac. And um, so you can find them any given weekday um, Flitting about on the playground holding hands Because they're best friends So we've had a chance to get to know the whites And, um, and I think, I believe, I know That, that Janelle's uh, little story About how she came to Christ and to this church uh, Could be motivating and encouraging to you So Janelle, can I ask you to come on up here She's not really used to this But she braved it I mean, I asked her, just so you know, on Friday And she was willing to totally do this, and uh, she said, sure. She didn't even have to think or pray about it because the Lord was just like, yeah, I'll I'll do this. So um, I just want you to share with your church family. I just have two questions, and if you're good, I'll ask more. (laughs) Um, First question is just tell Parkway, um, what is it that happened in your life that, that really brought about a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and then, you know, becoming a part of... Of our church. Just tell us your story.
1: Um, So I was raised in a Catholic family, so I always believed in God, Um, and then throughout growing up, seeds were planted and watered, but not until three er years ago did I really start to follow Christ. I um, was a surgical technologist for 10 years, and I had the privilege of working with Rob Lampleasy, but to me at that time, he was Dr. Lampleasy, and um, through the course of working with him, he was the book to me, Um, And the way that he carried himself, the way that um, he just acted, um, all of the encouragement and teaching that he did, um, never giving in to what was acceptable um, behavior, um, worldly behavior of inappropriate jokes or foul language. He just held himself um, to a different standard, and um, he was the book to me. And after complaining for a day of not having a church, he invited me to Parkway but not just invited me to Parkway, but he invited me to church with him, to sit with him and his wife who I'd never met. Um, He took my kids with me to the classes um, and he introduced me to everybody that he knew. And through friendships um, here and through all of his guidance and Kay's guidance and um, just the example they set, I now follow Christ.
0: Mm. One of the things she she shared me she ran this by me last night you know late night say is this okay and I said absolutely it's wonder- wonderful one of the things you talked about was how uh, Rob didn't allow there to be this separation between um, like a, a doctor and your tech he he didn't acknowledge those things maybe you could just say something about that because that was kind of cool
1: he um didn't let status or age or title or any of that no worldly society boundaries it was just one person to another person sharing Christ.
0: And how is, your, how is your life now? Let's just give everybody a sample of how has it changed, uh, the um, White family.
1: Nothing is the same. There's nothing the same anymore. Um, everything has changed. Um, immediately Tim changed his schedule in order to be able to attend church. Um, I quit my job after 10 years to be a stay-at-home mom so that I can better serve um, inside and outside of the church in different ministries. Um, all my friends, everything is different.
0: Well, I know it took a lot. Thank you for the short notice and coming up here and sharing your um, your little bit of your story with us. Um, we just uh, encourage our participants. You know what you won't hear her talk about because um, she wouldn't say anything like this. Is that? Uh, her little neighborhood has started to change, too. Um, you pull up in front of the house. I come, just a couple weeks ago pulled up in front of the house to pick up Isaac because and, and, uh, we carpool. And uh, I could hear Chris Tomlin, like, thumping out of the back of her van. And I've heard other people say you can hear Christian music in her backyard. And, and for the last several summers, because of what God's done in her life, uh, she has done this kind of in-house VBS on her street where she invites kids in and they have fun, you know, squirting each other with uh, super soakers and jumping on the trampoline and being goofy and stupid, but then stopping and telling the kids about Jesus. I mean, and that's just real stuff. And I know that she would say, and, and of course Rob has said, you know, that's the Lord that does this kind of stuff. Um, and it just is a marvel to me how, uh, like, a, a neighborhood is being influenced because a family was changed. And a family was changed because an individual is changed. And an individual was changed because she met a Christian in a hospital like North Bay. And the cool thing about that is that that's exactly how the Lord intended for Christianity to work. Um, is life meeting life. Um, that God would give his message to his people, but also write the message onto their hearts. So that there's something different about them wherever he places them. That, of course, has been our, our emphasis on, on, on being the book, not just speaking the book, but being the book. Uh, verbal proclamation of what Jesus has done is necessary. But but God communicates a message through the entirety of our lives, how we love people, the hope that people see in our eyes, the sense of joy regardless of circumstances. Our whole life is to be a communication letter to those around us, and that's how God designed it. Kind of part one of our our little mini-series was just a reflection on 2 Corinthians 3.3 where Paul, writing to this ancient church, said, and you show, as you demonstrate to others outside, that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. And as God has, has done something to, uh, for all new creatures in Christ, he has written something that has changed us from within, and that changes everything on the outside too. As, as, uh, as Janelle pointed out, everything has changed. Uh, when God reaches in and writes into our souls um, a new faith, a new hope, a new love, things begin to change. And and people can look and see a change. And that's what's supposed to happen. People are to see us and see a living flesh and bone um, representation of who Jesus is. But it's the entirety of our lives of being a letter. Well, Last week, part one was just kind of laying the foundation. We were meant to be the message, not just bear the message, but be the message in our lives. This morning, I want to focus uh, more particularly on the where. Like, where am I supposed to be this letter, this book, representing Jesus in all aspects of my life? Where? Now, the short answer to that simple question is, wherever God has providentially put you. That's the, that's the short answer. Wherever God has providentially put you, Put you. Now, in one sense, I could stop the message here, sit down, and we could go back and sing because that's the point of the message. But as with all truth, it needs to be paused, over, pondered, and considered. So I I just want to pause and consider for a moment that answer, wherever God in his providence has put you. I want to explain it and then give an example of it. There's that word in the middle of that phrase, um, wherever God has providentially put you, it's a word called providence. And we don't hear that word very much anymore, anymore outside the church. About a century and a half ago, however, you'd open a public history, history textbook and you would see words about providence um, because it largely informed the view of how c- people saw the world and history, Providence. Um, that belief that God has and does and will weave every fiber of history together for his purposes, that he's um, sustaining it all, that he is guiding it all to his final purposes, e- everything. I remember picking up a book by um, Joshua Chamberlain. He was he was uh, uh, an officer in the Civil War, and uh, he was responsible for were defending the left flank of the Union Army in Gettysburg. Um, he found himself at a place where his guys had no bullets, no ammunition, and uh, uh, the Confederate Army was coming up the flank. They had nothing, nothing with which to fight, and so they decided to make a final charge without any ammunition in their guns. They did, and they, they won the day. And was, as a result, he, he won a Medal of Honor. That's Joshua Chamberlain. But he wrote a book about that experience and about his life. It's called In the Hands providence. He knew at the end of the day that who won and who lost was a matter of God's hand. Who wins, who dies. That's what providence is. The belief that God is in complete and absolute control over everything from the rise and fall of nations and kingdoms all the way down to, that's Daniel chapter 4 verse 17, all the way down to the rise and fall of sparrows. Matthew chapter 10 verse 29. Now, A couple of little texts here that speak of it explicitly and you could go on and on and on because the whole idea of providence God sustaining, guiding to his purposes everything in history um, is something that underlies every story in the Bible it assumes it to be true we have little little texts like this like Proverbs 16 verse 9, the heart of a man plans his way that's what we do, we're planners right um, at least most of us are some of us aren't um, but the Lord establishes the steps. Now, who doesn't understand that? That we can make our plans, but we can't guarantee that our plans uh, come to fruition because the Lord is ultimately the one who establishes our lives. Uh, Jeremiah says pretty much something similar, Ten twenty-three. I know, O Lord, that the way of a man is not in himself. We cannot self-will our destiny or our path. God does. Uh, Psalms 147, dealing not so much with man but all creation. God is the subject of all of these verbs. He, God, covers the heavens with clouds. God prepares rain for the earth. God makes the grass grow in the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. It is the invisible hand of God sustaining and moving through all of the things he's created that are making things happen that we consider ordinary. We see grass grow and we think, well, that's just natural law. Um, The biblical worldview doesn't look at it that way. It's like God is making the grass grow through the properties that he made it. And he is in it and moving it to grow. That when it rains, that's God bringing rain on the earth. And so everything is understood to be by the hand of God or the providential hand of God. And then when I mentioned earlier, Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, they're ordinary and common. Um, And not one of them, not a single one, Of the millions and billions of species of sparrow falls to the ground apart from God willing it to be so. That is God, uh, the teaching that God sustains, controls everything. There is no exception to that. Which means there are no mistakes. There are no coincidences. Uh, There are no accidents, at least from God's perspective. Even the evil choices of men, God weaves into, he bends them into his good purposes... Two powerful examples of that are the life of Joseph in that latter part of Genesis, and of course the life of Jesus. Um, Joseph of Genesis, latter part of Genesis, is a man who experienced tremendous and repeated injustice. As many of you know who've read the story, um, his jealous brothers threw him into a pit, abandoned him, finally threw him, threw him, sold him into slavery to the Egyptians. Um, where he was picked up by a guy by the name of Potiphar, and his wife accused him of sexual assault, which wasn't true. So he was subsequently thrown into a prison. All of those things, pretty bad. Thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, accused of a, a, of a false crime, thrown into a dark prison in, in Egypt. Um, but there, he, um, he would eventually make his way up to the second in command of, of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And as a result of all of those injustices and painful situations, um, he ended up being the deliverer of the ancient people of Egypt and Israel. So that at the end of his life, Joseph could look at his brothers who, who hurt him and say that you meant to harm me. In other words, you intended this for evil, but the Lord intended these same things for good. In other words, he was in the middle of it all all of those painful circumstances, all of those evil choices, God bent into his good purposes. Um, the life of Jesus is the, per, is the most monumental one. You know, the only, the only um, innocent human being to have ever lived and stayed innocent, Adam started that way and then fell, um, the only innocent human being um, was put to death because men were jealous and conspired together to kill him. And yet we're told that in that act of evil and injustice, the likes of which we've never seen since then, because he's the only innocent man, um, we're told that they did what God's will had prepared in advance for them to do. And through that, to save the entire world, all who would come to faith in him. That is to say, in terms of what it is, providence is the belief that God guides every aspect of life. In a way that... Here are the qualifications. In a way that upholds his absolute righteousness. He never does wrong. In a way that upholds the absolute evil of evil and makes it blameworthy and condemns it. And in a way that still upholds the willing choices of men and women and the temporal and eternal consequences that come with those choices. How all that works together ultimately, I do not know. I just know that that's the picture of God that emerges from Scripture. That he is in control of it all. And this thing called providence is that invisible hand um, trusting that God is in this. There are no mistakes. So with that in mind, that means that wherever you're at professionally, it's not a mistake. The relationships that uh, God has made a part of your life, who you go on vacation with, the people that are in your office in the cubicle next to you, the person that you meet at the grocery store over and over again and get to know each other by name, Those are not mistakes. Where God has placed you geographically in this city or a neighboring city, whatever road or street you live on, whether you live in an apartment, a trailer, or a house, that is not a mistake according to the doctrine of providence. If you blow a tire today leaving church, it is not a mistake. It's not simply the nail in the road that you hit. There's design and purpose in it. If you step backwards on your lawn and and sprain your ankle on a a, a sprinkler, it's not a mistake. You meet a friend or neighbor in the grocery store, it's not a mistake according to this thing called providence. And that is how we're supposed to see the world in which we live. There are no mistakes. And wherever we are, that has a design. So when it comes to being the book or being the letter, providence would say, um, you're supposed to be a letter wherever God has already placed you. So instead of wishing you were somewhere else or wishing that you weren't where you are, some people do that. I wish I wasn't here. Wish I wasn't doing what I'm doing. Wish I wasn't in this job. Focus our attention on the fact that God did put you there. And it's not a mistake. It's easier to say than do, right? That's why I wanted to come to an example. The example... I wanted to look at is, is found in this book of Acts. That was the brief explanation of providence. There are no mistakes in life. So I picked this story of, 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 of uh, Paul suffering in a, in a jail or a prison in, in Philippi, one of the ancient cities in what is now modern-day Greece. And um, the reason I picked this story as an example of providence is because providence is easy when things are good and it's sunny outside. But what about when providence takes a... A dark turn, a painful turn, which surprises you, and you find yourself feeling like life is unraveling and you can't make sense of it. Then seeing providence and trusting God's goodness in that providence is much more difficult. So I chose this particular story because it's filled with pain, uh, it's filled with darkness, and it is, takes place in the context of a prison to see how providence works in connection with being the book. Now, I realize some of you who are new to the church probably don't understand what this book of Acts is. It's basically the first and only inspired um, record of the early church history. That after Jesus left, he told his initial 12 disciples, hey, go and take this this witness of what I have done, my death, my resurrection, tell people they're forgiven who believe in my name, that I'm gracious, and so forth. Take that message, live that message to the nations. And so Acts records um, the progress of that gospel going forth all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. That's kind of um, the direction it goes. It's outworking. Here in chapter 16, one of those people who were to go out and really the dominating uh, figure of the story is, is the Apostle Paul, making his way through the ancient world and, and, and living and preaching the gospel of Jesus to people. And um, he comes into this ancient town of Philippi, um, named after the father of Alexander the Great, a little side note. And at first, providence is good. Um, he comes into the city, and we're, we understand there's no, there's no synagogue there, so there was no place to start preaching. So he went outside the city and, um, and found a group of women there, a place of prayer, and he starts to tell them about Jesus. And the text tells us that a woman by the name of Lydia, um, she's a businesswoman and a dealer in purple, she hears the message, and the Lord opens her heart. The Lord is the one who opens her heart to believe the message, and she takes these apostles home with her, and her whole household comes to faith. That's scene one. Things are looking good. Scene two. Um, Paul and Silas were walking through the the streets of Philippi, and it sounds like they were there for quite a bit of time. And as they're walking back and forth um, through the days, uh, there is this slave girl who has a demonic gift of fortune-telling. And she follows them around wherever they go. And um, and. Distracting the crowds—at least that's the sense. They're like, "Hey, these are the, the servants of the Most High," so she's following them around, drawing attention, and probably distracting what they're trying to do. And the text actually tells us in chapter 16, verse 18, that the po- Apostle Paul had put up with this for so long that he finally got greatly annoyed. You know, it's like—have you ever been at a place where, like, your kids are arguing and throwing stuff at each other, and you're just had it up to here? You're done. Now, Paul Paul's a human just like us and his, his annoyance tank was empty, or grace tank, patience tank was empty, and his annoyance was at an all-time high. So he turns around after dealing with this woman, demon-possessed woman, and he looks at her and he says, you know, tells the demon to get out in the name of Christ. And by the power of the kingdom in Christ, this, this slave girl is released from her oppression and her domination. So she's freed. It's an act of, of kingdom power. Now that's Everything's looking good, you know? A woman is saved, another woman is delivered. However, the slave girl and her demonic gift was kind of the cash cow of her masters. So when she lost the demon, she lost the gift, which meant they lost money. Bottom line. It's okay if you want to preach the gospel, but as soon as it costs my pocketbook, well, this is where the story picks up. This is what happens. Um, things start to, the, the good providence starts to unravel like a fraying rope. And uh, we read in verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. So now it's a mob scene. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted, Many blows. Bible doesn't ever waste adjectives. When they had inflicted many blows, in other words, they were brutally beaten. They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now we've taken a turn. Everything's wonderful. First, whatever, couple weeks, and now they find themselves bloody, brutally beaten uh, in the innermost part of a prison in darkness, in the dank, musty, urine-smelling tomb of a prison. Now, if there's a time when it's hard to be the book and be a living letter, it's when you've entered into this time of tremendous pain. Now, let's just uh, stop and imagine for a second how, how, how typical humans respond to that kind of condition and how maybe some of us would be tempted to act as well. Um, whenever we find ourselves in a difficult situation where things come down and unravel, we ask ourselves, did I make a strategic mistake? Self-doubt. You know, maybe we stayed here in Philippi just a little bit too long. Uh, maybe we should have left earlier. Good self-guess that or have you ever noticed in times of crisis and pain people tend to like to point the fingers at each other if it was you and me if if i was silas and you were paul i'd look at you and probably say dude why did you let her get into your skin like couldn't you just you just had she'd been following us for days why didn't you just let it go no you had to go be mr mighty apostle (laughs) annoyance up to here turn around and say get out demon and then we were totally hosed Oh, you can see that happening. Am I right? That's just human crisis moment. You and your wife are getting ready to go on vacation. Tell me this doesn't happen. You're trying to get the kids packed, you're packed, trying to get the car out in those moments of crisis. You don't get a little sharp with each other. Oh, I know it happens. I know it happens. (laughs) I think it could have happened. I think another thing, this is probably more 21st century American, but we probably would have been demanding in that moment. Our one telephone call. I just want my one telephone call to call the Jewish consulate, if they had those in those days, or, or maybe um, a good defense attorney. Uh, maybe we would have found ourselves a little bit angry with the Lord. We're doing his work. We saw good things. Then all of a sudden, I mean, this is the way it works out. The Lord stood by while we got beat. Why didn't he come to our rescue? He delivered the slave girl from the demon. How come he didn't deliver us from the magistrates and from the beating? That's that's really fairly typical human response. Hard time to be the book. Easy time to think that it's the magistrates, it's the um, it's the masters of the slave girl, it's this stupid place called Philippi, and look at everything else. Uh, the firm, first human instinct would have been to get out, to get out of a painful situation. But something different happens and um, in an amazing display given the fact that they I think they understood that God had a providential purpose there are no accidents the beating was not accidental the injustice was not accidental there was no trial no evidence they were falsely accused um, that it was not an accident The being in the inner part of the prison not an accident being in change not an accident so what is it that they do when providence turned dark and painful. Well, this, you know the story, but I just love it every time I, I read this story because it's it just, I don't know, it's so illuminating and encouraging and inspiring all at the same time. It says about midnight, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, probably Psalms of thanksgiving, maybe lament and thanksgiving, and the prisoners were listening to them. So in this dark time, a dark providence, dark painful prison context, these men are giving thanks and praying out loud. Now there was a time in which I think I probably would have interpreted interpreted this as, as the way many Christians think about being Christian. That is, okay, dark situation, there are unbelievers here, so let's put on our game faces. Let's act like Christians here. Meanwhile, what's underneath is this person who's angry or complaining or bitter. Those are two different things. That's called hypocrisy. Let's put on a game face and let's sing because that's what Christians are supposed to do. You know, it's, not, it's, it's really no different than like going to a Celine Dion concert or a, or a Broadway show. It's like people come out and they put on a face to believe, make you believe what they really don't believe or, or experience what you're, they're really not experiencing. I don't think that's Christianity. Not one where the Spirit of God writes something inside the human heart that changes it in such a way that even in that context, what's inside is now coming outside. That these men genuinely, um, I mean, God has done something in their souls as he has done to many of your souls in awakening a faith in the grace and the love of God of knowing the joy that we are forgiven, the joy that we're children, the joy that we have a future and a hope. And, and in that dark place arose from that place where the Spirit lives and where the Spirit writes and where the gospel dwells arose a, 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 a thanksgiving, a gratitude that made its way up through the lungs and through the vocal cords, through the, through, the, through the throat and through the mouth and through the lips, and then it hung there in the air in a, in a form of authentic, sincere praise for the, to the Lord. As you're seeing. The only way that I know that they could possibly do that, knowing, and this is somewhat of a guess, but that they could do that is, one, the Spirit of God really had written grace into their hearts, but two, is they knew that part of the Christian blessing is being able to share in the sufferings of Jesus, we're allergic to suffering as, as as Americans, but that's not the way Paul thought, or the early Christians who 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 rejoiced because they were counted worthy of sharing just in a tidbit of what Jesus had done for them. So, in the darkness of that prison, and in pain, and in lacerations, and, and blood oozing from their stripes, they knew that they were just they were fellowshipping at a profound level with the crucified Jesus who gave his life for them. And the Paul says, I, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted to because he wanted to know Jesus because Jesus was the love of his life. Or to fill up the afflictions um, of Christ in one's, one's own experience. I, I really believe this comes out and they considered it a joy to be able to suffer with Jesus in that dark place. I think that's where it came from. But it came from the heart so there they are in this dark place, and what are they doing? They're being the letter, they're being the book, and it's not an act, it's not a performance, they're just simply in testimony, outward testimony, and, and uh, gratitude to the Lord, even in this dark place, and people are hearing it around. It says the other prisoners were listening, which is key. That's one way is that, that we are the book, wherever God has placed us, especially the painful context, is still, though it may be difficult, to give Thanks. And rejoice that though the circumstances may be painful, it's not a mistake, and God is good. But there's also um, they also are the book and the letter, in the way they love. The next part of this um, unfolding story is, is quite um, surprising, actually, because it says in verse twenty six. I got it up there, yeah. um, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now let's just pause there for a little moment and just think about that. There's an earthquake, Providence, and because of that earthquake, all the doors are open. Now come on. Like, I, I, I could understand, if, if I was a skeptic, that some of the doors would, you know, boom, and a couple of the doors, tick, er, but not all the doors. All the doors of the prison come flying open. Now, someone might be pressed to say, okay, 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 all the, all the doors. But all their stocks and chains came off, too. Now, whether that was, uh, you know, whether it was ancient rivets or, or bolts, the fact is, all the doors swung open and all of the chains fall off. That's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's earthquake. All the doors open. All the chains are off. Now, if your first impulse and first and primary concern is your own safety and your own self-preservation, if that was Paul, and Silas, they would have scrammed at this point. Doors are open. Chains are gone. I'm out of here. But the surprising thing is that they don't. They stay there. They stay in the prison cell. And of course, the t- story tells us that the, the, that's exactly what the jailer thought. He saw the doors open, and it's like, they're gone. That's what any human in that situation would do, except a Christian who wants to love his enemy. So he runs in, thinks he's going to, uh, all the prisoners gone. He's going to kill himself. And what is it that Paul does? He cries with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. First instinct, self-preservation, leave, escape. But he chooses not to. He remains, he and Silas, both in the prison, unshackled with doors open. And somehow they had persuaded. Now this reading between the lines. Perhaps they had convinced the other prisoners because of their singing and because they were so different. I mean, these men were praising in pain. When they should have been cursing, they were praising. They saw the miracle of people who were in shackles, brutally beaten, still giving thanks. Maybe it won over their hearts. The fact of the matter is, it seems that they were persuaded to stay in there too. Why? Because at this moment, Paul's saying, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. He was concerned not with himself, but the heart of his enemy. The jailer was an enemy, you know? Correctional officers, most of them, not all grow callous because of the criminals they have to deal with. They're known for their bedside manner. And this one would have been no different. Locked them up with the harshness of a, someone who just doesn't give a darn. And here Paul on the inside in response says, wait, don't take your life, we're here. We stayed. Now that is so distinctively Jesus-like. To put one's own freedom um, as a second place to the life of another person, that's un-American, but it's very Christian for him to do that. And he tells him, "Don't harm yourself," and and that speaks volumes. These men are doing exactly what the opposite of what normal humans in their self-centered way would do. They're singing when they should be cursing, and they're loving when they should be caring about their own skins. And that living book, that letter, that something is different speaks volumes to this. This jailer, because it says that, um, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Sorry, I don't have this for you. This is verse 28, um, 29. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, the jailers washing the wounds of his prisoners. And he was baptized at once, and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire house that he had believed in God. I think it's interesting about the story is before Paul ever preaches the gospel, and Silas, he lives the gospel, he shows his joy shows his hope and his gratitude regardless of the circumstances because he knows he's the Lord's. Others see it authentic and then he sees somebody that loves people um, in sacrificial ways and that spoke so much to the, to the jailer that by the time he came to them he said, what, what do I have to do to be saved? He's already read the letter in the book and now he hears for the first time you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what does that translate to for us? I already told you that there are no mistakes. God has you where, where you are. Um, and you're supposed to be the book, the letter of Christ in flesh and blood wherever he's placed you, geographically, relationally, professionally. But I would add that we are to be the book and the letter regardless of whether our circumstances are good or even more importantly, when things aren't so good. I just really think that sometimes people see what we say as Christians, and when things are good, they question is it real? What happens when that person is put into the vice grip of life, like Paul and Silas were? It seems that oftentimes God will take us down a dark providence of life, painful, whatever the case may be, whatever the circumstance, to show that. This man or woman who is mine really has something different inside. And that they can see more clearly in the darkness of your circumstance that God has written something unique in your heart. A faith and a hope and a love that cannot be conditioned upon your circumstances. And that shines in the darkness far more than if it was in the light. So as, as, as we look at our lives, our circumstances, some of you are prospering and doing well and, and you're not in pain, and there's many others who are. It's not an accident or a mistake. I guarantee you, however, that God's love and his goodness is in it with you. He'll show you his glory in it and he will, he will communicate to others the letter and the book that he's written in your soul. If you're willing to put him first and not your own survival or comfort, so the, the really the question again comes down to: Are you willing to be the book wherever you're at, if your circumstances are good or bad? Are you willing to look and recognize, all right, God, this is a mistake. What do you want me to do? Give thanks, testify, and live. So let me um, just close by asking you to just stop your mind and your heart. Reflect on your life. Where are you? What are you doing? Where has God placed you? Are you in a difficult place right now? job you don't want to be in? I, I don't know. Do you recognize that there are no mistakes and God is going to be good? Trust him. Trust his providential goodness. And, and be the book and the letter. Pray, Lord Jesus, please help me to live this out in my context daily. So you spend time just ask the Lord that you commune with the Lord and respond to this message in the way that the Lord wants you to respond and um, then we'll close with a couple of songs of worship.